you're doing well. Welcome back to a brand new edition of the Ariel Helwani Basketball Show. Really excited about today's show, and it's a bit of a different one. You know, we've talked to some uh, big stars, some active stars, the likes of uh, Chris Stapps Porzingis, talked to Michael Carter-Williams early on in our uh, basketball show journey here. We talked to the likes of Action Bronson and most recently Kenny Smith. Uh, today's guest isn't necessarily a household name, but a very important player in the world of basketball. He is the CEO of EuroLeague, and they have a massive weekend coming up. His name is Marshall Glickman. He's been involved in the game of basketball for about 40 years. Uh, He is the son of the Hall of Famer, the legendary Harry Glickman, who founded the Portland Trailblazers and uh, is a legend, especially in the Pacific Northwest. And he himself, uh, Marshall, um, in his early days, worked for the Portland Trailblazers, worked for the NBA, uh, eventually became the president of the Trailblazers uh, once he came back to the Blazers after leaving the NBA, and in the early 2000s, worked as a consultant for EuroLeague. Now, we're going to explain in the interview what EuroLeague is. I'm not going to do that here because I'm not going to assume everyone knows what EuroLeague is, but off the top, just think kind of Champions League if you're a soccer fan. They have a massive weekend coming up, like I said, on Friday. They have their final four. It's uh, Olympiacos against Monaco and Barcelona against Real Madrid. It's a tremendous brand of basketball. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of fire. There's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of loyalty. It's very much like European soccer. And I'm a big fan, and a lot of great players have come from the EuroLeague system to have great careers in the NBA. You know a lot of them. They are household names, the likes of Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis as of late. And so we'll talk about all of that, how he got this job as an American now, uh, as only the second CEO in the history of EuroLeague. Talk about his uh, early days with the Blazers and the NBA working with the late, great David Stern, and also his vision for the future of EuroLeague. A uh, new deal with ESPN was just signed, perhaps some you know, co-promotion, if you will, with the NBA. It's a really great conversation about the business of European basketball, the the task to grow the league and to make it more popular, especially in massive markets like England and France, which, you know, basketball isn't as popular as soccer these days. So we cover all that and a whole lot more. Really enjoyed the conversation with Marshall Glickman, and I hope you do as well. Without further ado, here's my chat with the CEO of EuroLeague, Marshall Glickman. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined today by the CEO of EuroLeague, the great Marshall Glickman, who is in the midst of probably the busiest time of his year with the semifinals on Friday, May 19th, finals on Sunday, May 21st. But he is kind enough to be taking out some time out of his very busy schedule to join us here to talk about the EuroLeague, which I am a fan of and have been looking forward to this chat for the last few weeks. So first off, Marshall, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, nothing but a pleasure. Um, well, and especially during this busy time, we really appreciate uh, you taking out some time. Um, I've I've often had a soft spot in my heart, if 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 I can say off the top, for Maccabi Tel Aviv, who never really do much on the global soccer uh, stage, but <laughs> are often powerhouses in the uh, the world of Euro basketball. They did not make the semifinals, but you have a tremendous uh, quartet of teams that are about to play on Friday, Olympiacos and Monaco. And then how about an old-fashioned El Clasico between uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid? Um, as, as we enter the semifinals, I want to ask you to kind of preview 
those matchups for the fans. But first, can I ask you this? You are about to wrap up your first season as CEO of EuroLeague. How would you assess this first season for you in this role? Uh, quite a uh, journey, quite a learning experience. Uh, last I checked, uh, Europe is not a country. Some Americans think that Europe is a country, not me. I've been here for a while, but uh, it's more and more clear that there are significant differences in mentality, culture, economics, politics, uh, you know, nationalistic, uh, you know, history uh, between countries, between regions sometimes. And then it all comes together around this sort of community of your league basketball, which is both the opportunity and, and something that I think is very positive and differentiates your league from really any other sports property in the world. Uh, but it is also creates a certain amount of challenge for the CEO. So I, I enjoyed uh, dealing with those. But it, what it means is there's not a, uh, a, a convenient one-size-fits-all solution to anything. And so I've had to learn to be flexible uh, and nimble and uh, responsive to the different needs and the different realities of all of our markets. Tougher job than you thought it was going to be? I mean, in some ways, yeah, but I mean, not tough in a negative way. Just, yeah, it's really challenging. It's, uh, I told somebody uh, maybe four or five months into this that this is the hardest thing I've ever done professionally. Wow. Yeah, and that is but, saying a lot um, considering what you have done. And and I'd love to talk about that as well. Um, could I just ask, and, and, and perhaps you will roll your eyes and think this is a silly question, but I don't want to assume that especially the American audience knows exactly what EuroLeague is. I think we know what Champions League is. And yeah. so could I just ask you, and that would be for soccer, of course, could I ask you, uh, could you could you tell us, what is EuroLeague? EuroLeague is the best 18 basketball clubs across the European continent, which for basketball purposes includes two teams that are technically in Asia, one of which is Maccabi Tel Aviv. Uh, and the other is um, uh, one of our two teams in Istanbul. I forgot which one's on the Asian side and which one's on the right. European side. Okay. So um, uh, that's uh, what it is. Um, it is a competition that at the beginning followed traditional really uh, formatting that came from the European where you earn your way into the European competitions by having sports results in your domestic leagues so that's how you qualify to play champions league and mm -hmm. or the europa cup in our case there's yearly basketball and there's euro cup however uh, we have what is really a hybrid model between the u.s closed system where there's no relegation or promotion and an open league so i guess we're a quasi closed league so of the 18 clubs that play EuroLeague, 13 of those 18 are permanent. And the other, there are two others that are the champion and the runner-up of the second competition that are promoted annually. And then the other three teams are two teams are wild cards. Now, right now we have an extra wild card because one of our 13 shareholding clubs is CSKA Moscow, who currently is not able to play. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between EuroLeague and EuroCup? EuroLeague is the top 18 and EuroCup is the next 20. Okay, so would that be 
um, I, I guess maybe the difference between like Champions League and Europa League in, in soccer, exactly right? Exactly the same thing. Exactly. Uh, why does Euroleague employ the the strategy of you know, as you said, I believe you said thirteen teams are are locked in no matter what, no matter how they do, and then you have the other teams that can qualify, as opposed to every year it's wide open, and even if you're a top club, if you're not doing well, you're not going to be a part of it. Because this is a business and it's not sustainable to have teams that are rotating year after year after year. And one year you're in a, uh, an important, a bit, you know, a European capital, a big market. And the next year you're in a small market. That's the business reality that we live in. We have to compete on, you know, on a global platform. And uh, just like any other league, we have to be financially viable. Okay. And, at, and, and is there a particular reason why the number is 18? Uh, um, hmm. I don't think I know the answer to that question. Okay, no I problem. Mean, it's 18 because that's what I walked into. Uh, but there are, uh, the intention is to increase the number of teams over time. And and just curious, like, um, for example, uh, uh, Madrid, uh, Barcelona, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv, do they have their own sort of Spanish league, Israeli league? Yeah, yeah, I'm and- sorry. All the, I should have been. So all the clubs play in a domestic league. Exactly. Okay. Yes. And typically our clubs are at the top of their domestic leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, varies a little bit, but typically they're right, you know, first, second, third place almost every year. In addition to that, they play in your league. This is why we don't play weekends. The weekends right now are preserved for the domestic leagues. We play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Sometimes we play one game a week, but some weeks we play two games a week. Okay. Um, and we play a total, everybody plays in a round robin format. So it's home and away against everybody. So with 18 teams, that means we play 34 games. Then we go into a playoff, which is the top eight of those teams play a three out of five, two, two, one playoff series. And then they go to a final four which is played at a pre-selected location year or two in advance, single elimination, just like the NCAA, very dramatic. And at the final four, um, fans travel. Hmm. I mean, a lot of local fans too, but fans travel, which makes for a really amazing atmosphere. You can imagine you've got fans from all four of these uh, qualifying teams coming and traveling and coming into the city. And it's usually really peaceful and really positive. One scene I can remember, we had the final four, I believe it was 2006 in Prague, Czechoslovakia, which is not a basketball country, Mm -hmm. but it's a great market with a great arena. So we went there with the final four and that Maccabi uh, qualified that year. And I got on the subway to go from the hotel to the arena and every single person in the subway was wearing yellow Every single person had Maccabi scarves and they broke out in song, singing Hebrew songs. I mean, I mean, the whole thing almost made me cry. It was it was really incredible scene. So there's just a lot of pride that people bring. And when pride comes from four different places and people are excited to be there and they're real basketball fans, that's really a cool thing. This year we're in Countess, Lithuania. Lithuania is one of the great basketball countries in the world. I mean, basketball is really number one there. And it's the home of Arvidas Sabonis, who played for us in Portland for many years. And it's funny because the main city of, uh, of of Lithuania is Vilnius. 
but Kaunas is an hour away. And in Kaunas is a relatively small city, but they've got a first class arena, really nice. And so we're doing it there because it, we want to honor the, the basketball community there, you know, and this arena is really perfect. So it's going to be an interesting dynamic there, but people are going to be really into it. Uh, as you know, a big topic of discussion here in the United States regarding the NBA is their upcoming uh, TV deals. Uh, they are up in in you know less yep. than two years. And I'm wondering, in Europe, uh, how's your TV situation? That's a big part, right? Distribution is a big part, and I've heard you talk about- Yeah, TV, TV is a big deal. The difference in Europe is you can't make a deal that covers Europe. There's no, you know, there's no deal with ESPN that covers, you know, this whole huge, you know, wow. or Disney and, you know, they make a deal with Disney, which is ABC and ESPN. And they make a separate deal with TNT, yep. but that only covers, I don't know what the number is, maybe 15%, 20% of the games, right? right? So then teams make regional TV deals. And of course that's changing rapidly because these regional sports networks are going down because we're going to a streaming. So there's a big transition going on in that world. In Europe, we have to the rights are centralized. So everything is sold through a joint venture agreement that we have with IMG Media. So IMG Media is our partner and together the joint venture is called EuroLeague Ventures and all the commercial um, properties, intellectual property, audiovisual rights, certain sponsorship rights at the league level, events, things like that are sold centrally through your league ventures. And then the money through your league ventures that is held by our side of that deal is redistributed back to the clubs. Okay. So that's how we generate money. But that means that we have to go into Israel and make a deal in Israel. Okay. We have to go into Serbia and make a deal in Serbia. Now, sometimes uh, as, as we look out into the future crystal ball, uh, maybe we're going to be able to start being a little more uh, creative about that. Maybe there could be a global streaming platform that covers the whole globe. Um, maybe there could be some experimentation with playing a game or two or whatever on different days of the week. Um, you know, so, you know, the thing that's cool about, so I was at the NBA tech summit in Salt Lake city that they hold in conjunction with the all-star weekend, which is one of the great events I've ever, it was amazing because they bring some of the really forward thinking people globally. And somebody showed a demonstration of how you could take a single game feed, have a menu down the left, pick your language. Mm. All of a sudden, the commentary is in your language. The graphics are in your language. And then further customization. So maybe you want to watch the player cast feed, which is two players like the Manning cast, you know, with the NFL. Maybe you want to watch a feed that's oriented to kids. And that's what the NFL has done with Nickelodeon. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Mm. Maybe you want to watch something that's oriented because you're wagering on the games mm. so for the betters. Or maybe you want to watch the game in a more traditional way. Or maybe you want to watch the game silently. Maybe you want that. And you just want to hear, you know, like you're in the arena. So you don't want a commentator. So there's all because of this beautiful technology we have. Um there's things that can happen now that are interesting. And so, uh, and plus, uh, we already have a partner that will be doing the final four in virtual reality. And it's, you know, we're reaching a small number right now, but when you put on the headset, when you put on the Oculus headsets and watch a game, 
as though you're like in the middle of the court. It's really an awesome. That is tremendous. Yeah. And so things like that are picking up. And um, interestingly enough, we're talking about this and you recently signed a deal with ESPN to broadcast uh, the games. That's for next season, correct? No. Yes. Yes. And no. Okay. Tell me. Um, It's a two year deal, but uh, it includes the final four this coming weekend, next weekend. Tremendous. Has this been a blind spot? for EuroLeague in the past because as someone who wants, you know, I, I heard of Luka Doncic, I heard of Chris Stapps Porzingis, but it was always very hard to find how to watch these games. Now you're on ESPN, ESPN Plus. Is this part of why you're here to try to make the, the league more visible in the United States? I mean, it's on my list. It's not, I'm, they didn't hire an American for that specific reason because, uh, but but the truth is the United States, the biggest basketball market in the world, mm. it's a hugely popular sport. The NBA is amazing and their marketing machine is the best I've ever seen. But there is, you know, what we're selling is a different, it's basketball, yes, but it's a very different deal. My 22-year-old son, like most, young people his age is following the stars of the nba the 20 stars of the nba frankly wherever they play now he's from portland so he's a blazer fan but if damian lillard gets traded to the new york knicks i'm telling you he's gonna be a new york knicks fan Mm -hmm. he's into damian more than the team um and so um he didn't really know like you it's your league what is where where what is that you know right and so now that his father's, you know, the CEO, he's following it. And what he's, he's now, he's sending me WhatsApp messages in the middle of games now because I got him his EuroLeague TV subscription. So that is a way, by the way, in the States. So we have a streaming app. It's relatively uh, modestly priced. So people can watch also that way. But um, so what he's saying to me is, you know, the talent level, the raw talent level in the NBA is higher, but the quality of the games and the intensity of every game, not just the playoff games, but every game matters. He's really picking up on that. I mean, he really, he can't believe how hard our players fight to win. Hmm. And it does make for crazy. I mean, and then the fans here, particularly in certain markets, but Tel Aviv being one of them, uh, Belgrade being another one, Athens, Istanbul, these in Spain too, these fans really are into it, really into it. You know, that's kind of a carryover from soccer. Of course, yeah, the chants, the songs. As long as it doesn't cross certain lines. Sure. And it stays safe and it stays clean. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I took my wife and son to a partisan game in Belgrade back in December and I had never been there. It was unbelievable. I've never all my life been to an NBA game with that atmosphere. Never. Yeah. Not and, any NBA game. And I think that is part of the appeal that more people need to know about because you watch a December game between, you know, the Hornets and the Magic. It just doesn't really have any kind of soul. I hear you. You watch any uh, of your I'm not games. I'm going to criticize the NBA. But well, I'll I say it. You, you know, said it. I, I, don't, so, I don't think you need to be, you know, a, a no. hater to say that. It's just a, no. an observation. But can I ask you about this? And I've heard you talk about the younger generation and your son as well. Um, one thing that I think Adam Silver did a great job when he took over as commissioner is he leaned in to the internet, right? He was okay with letting people clip off things on Twitter, yep. Instagram, now TikTok. 
do you yep. feel like that's something that your league should do? And are totally. you noticing? Are you okay with that? Because there's other leagues, as you know, that they'll try to strike all of that and take it down. But I think just letting it spread yeah. is ultimately better for the youth because that's how they watch games these days, right? They're not sitting like Absolutely. we did in the 90s. Absolutely, and they don't watch whole games. They watch pieces of games. They watch highlights. They watch content that is not the game itself. Uh, they're interested in all kinds of stories around the games. They're interested in, you know, the lives of play. You know, there's a lot of things they're interested in. So, I no, I'm fully on board. You know, listen, I'm writing Adam's coattails. You know, he's brilliant. And, uh, yes, I'm more than okay. Okay. Um, so, now if we could take a step back. Uh, your father... Um, would it be fair to say it was the one that sort of introduced you to the world of basketball? Now, I, I cover um, a lot of fighting, and I believe your father was involved in the world of promotion and events, like like an old school promoter, if you will. Dare I say a couple of fights that he's promoted in his day as well? Am I correct Boxing with that? Boxing matches. Boxing, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, old school. So I love that sort of thing. Did you follow in his footsteps? Um, and ultimately, when you started to work for the the NBA and then eventually the Blazers, is that how you got into this or was it through some other means? Oh, I got in through nepotism. That is a true story. I can't pretend otherwise. Uh, I got out of college in 81 and I swore I would never work in the business, that I would never work for my father because every kid coming out of college wants their independence. So I went to Los Angeles and got involved in producing jazz radio programs. So for a podcast guy, you should dig that and uh, work for a really cool company called Syndicated Inc., and we made jazz programs and syndicated them out to jazz radio stations. We sold advertising around it. We worked with Wolfman Jack and his production people. It was really a cool experience. You know, I wasn't making any money. It was hard to live. And uh, so um, eventually I got back to Portland and there was an opportunity at the Trailblazers. And so when that happened, I went in there knowing that everybody was going to know I was there because I had an inside way of getting the job. So I swore to myself that I was going to rise above that and I was going to show everybody that, you know, I was here to work. And uh, I think I, I earned respect over time and kind of built uh, my own reputation and my own independence. And I never... I made a, the other pledge I made was never to go into my father's office during work hours. And I never did. Uh, and so that was good. At a certain point in time, I got to know David Stern actually before he was named commissioner. Uh, you know, back in the early collective bargaining days, he was the general counsel. But I made friends with him by being inquisitive. I knew he was interested in technology and what technology could do for, for his brand. And I knew he was a marketing guy at heart, even though he was a lawyer. And so I started calling him after hours, knowing his secretary would not pick up or filter the call. Mm -hmm. He would answer directly. And I always had, hey, Mr. Stern. And I got I engaged him in conversations about satellites and things. And that led to kind of getting his attention. And the next thing I know, they recruited me to the NBA and uh, I was, you know, a lot of people were close to David, but I was there in the early days. There were 50 people in the front office. So I had a lot of access to him. And then over the years after I went back to Portland and my career rose considerably, particularly after Paul Allen bought the club. Uh, but, um, you know, he was amazing. He always was accessible over all the years, all the way to the end of his life. I took my son in to meet him only uh, like 
three months before he passed. Mm. He sat with my son for two hours. Wow. It inspired him. And he was an amazing man. I could spend hours. Um, the, the sport of basketball isn't what it is today without David Stern. There's no doubt about that. And I'm, I'm just wondering what was it like working by his side? Cause I've never met him, but obviously you hear the stories that he had a bit of a fiery, uh, personality yeah, but, he could be, was he, was he tough to work with? I mean, no, I mean, but I was, you know, I was in that first early phase and so it changed, I think, but yeah, sure. He's a New Yorker. He's yeah. a New Yorker. Come on. You know what that is. I mean, so in in that era, in that era, 70s, 80s, high, strong, you know, sure. Um, one of my colleagues at the NBA told me one day, has he yelled at you yet? And I'm, you know, I've been there for like three months. I said, no. They said, well, you better hope he yells at you soon, because if he doesn't, you don't matter. Uh. And I remember when he finally gave me a little piece yeah. of his mind. I was so relieved. I was so <laughs> relieved. And I looked at him and, and instead of getting all upset and nervous, I was like, come on, man, bring it on. I loved it. Bring, give me some more. That is amazing. So, yeah. He, he would fire up, but he fired up. And, you know, I, I got calls when I first moved to New York and I didn't know anybody. And I'm in the, coming from Portland, big city. I'm a kid. Um, my standard of living definitely went down from what I was used to. And he would call me at home two or three times and say, hey, are you okay? You know, that meant so much to me that he took a few minutes uh, to do that. He was a very, very good person, uh, really. And uh, I think a lot of people may not have seen that side of him. But he, for me and for a lot of people who really knew him, he could not have been a a warmer. And, and, And then on the business, just brilliant just a brilliant you think about this guy who you know he grew up in a jewish deli right and you know he anyway he i remember alan iverson this guy is covered in tats you know everywhere he looks a little hip-hoppy or a lot hip-hoppy back before hip-hop was kind of a thing Back then, it was like that kind of music was associated with NWA and Compton and gangs. And and David embraced that culture. You'd think that somebody coming from where he come from would have been afraid of that culture. No, he did the opposite thing. He embraced that culture and said, this is the NBA. This is a league where the vast majority of our players are African-American, many of whom are from the inner cities of america that's the 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 heart of basketball is on the playground and he he just got that and he and instead of being afraid of it he he, you know i think the nba some people would say it's moved but you know what he was and he was so intensely committed to equality i can tell you in his front office equality in every form you can think of I mean, he really, his politics were fantastic. He was a great man. Mm. Um, you, you were very forward-thinking in, in your early days um, working for the Blazers. You launched something called Blazers Cable. Uh, can did. you tell me what that is? Yeah, it's the same thing as streaming is today, yeah. basically. I mean, it wasn't streaming, but it was the same idea. <clears throat> the story is very simple. We played in the second smallest capacity arena in the NBA, which like just under 13,000 seats. Uh, Nice arena, but small. We sold out 
every game for eight. Finally, it was, I think it was 860, 800, almost 850 consecutive games. You can do the math how many seasons that is. You couldn't get a ticket to a Blazer game. Most of our seats were season tickets. In the late 70s, we said, well, what do we do? We don't have, an, the, nobody was talking about new arenas back then. Mm -hmm. and there was no way to expand the arena. So we had the brilliant idea of putting our games on, on at a theater. Wow. And the like theater. Like closed circuit? Exactly. Okay. So this was a theater called the Paramount, beautiful, ornate, old school theater, you know, like from the vaudeville days. Yeah. But big, 3,000 seats. Wow. We sold season tickets to watch our home games in the theater. The closed circuit, we went and purchased these really expensive GE projectors and beamed it onto the big screen and showed the game live. And going to a game there was, a, in some ways, a better experience than being in the arena. Wow. Because it was a different breed of cat that showed up at the games. It was so cool. The 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 fans first the tickets were five dollars or ten or you know they weren't like nearly as expensive. So you got people. It was more affordable. But you got instead of the highfalutin NBA courtside crowd, there was none of that there. These were real basketball fans. And what was cool is like when the national anthem would happen, they would stand up for the national anthem. They were yelling at the referees, but the referees aren't there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was really a great scene and people were drinking and having a great time. So what happened is then cable showed up and they started stringing cable. But what we learned quickly is it wasn't just that. It was that you could address the signal. You could scramble a signal, addressable cable converters, they called them back then. And so that opened up an opportunity to take what we were doing in the theater and send it into the home. And by the way, we didn't shut down the theater because people wanted to be in the theater to be in a gathering, to be in a social situation. But some people didn't want that. They wanted to stay home. So we gave them both options. And that was the beginning of Blazer Cable, which was a package of games. It wasn't all games because back then the mentality was, if you put all your home games on TV, you're going to hurt your gate. Yeah. Now that mentality has completely changed today, but that's literally what everybody thought back then. We had to protect the gate, but we put, so we were kind of revolutionary even to do that. And we were putting out initially like 15 of our best home games through blazer cable. I love that. I, I, I love those, uh, those early days of, of the NBA, especially in the eighties, as they're trying to kind of evolve yep. and, and, and compete with the other leagues. Um, when you went to the NBA as, as we discussed, but then you came back, as you mentioned to the Blazers in, uh, 1988 and eventually became a uh, president of the team. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious, uh, you, you were working for the team when the Blazers made it to the finals against the Bulls. Were you at game one in Chicago when Jordan hit the six threes in the first half and did the, uh, I don't know what's going on. Were you there? You're not going to make me remember. I mean, it's a great moment now, some 30-something years later, no? Well, Does wait it a still stay? So we split in Chicago. Yes, you did. And we came back to Portland, and it was 2-3-2, two, two, and that format killed us. And um, well, Why did it kill you? Because you're not going to win three games in a row at home yeah. against anybody at that stage. You know, you're just not. I mean, okay. it's, these are good teams. Yeah. So at some point, the home crowd only has so much impact, you know? Um, anyway, yeah, it still stings, but I mean, remember Detroit got us too. what was it? 89, yeah. same situation. 
I remember one game where Isaiah just started throwing up stuff with his eyes closed and it was all going in. It was like, dude, you're taking bad shots. I mean, we are all over you like a wet blanket. You're still, it's still going in. You're, I'm, you know, I'm, I want to kill you. How are you making these shots? And then Jordan was in, what was it? 91. And 92. 92, I meant. He was not known as a great long distance shooter, right? Mm -hmm, no. But, but man, when it mattered, then he became a great long distance shooter. He was like, he was just ridiculous. And are you remember? Oh God. He just started. Shoo, shoo, shoo. What can I say? We I always so love those Blazers teams. I love the the uniforms. I love that they still kept them all these years later. But they were just a, you know, Clyde Drexler was the man kind of you know, like, I feel like the hardcore fans, Jordan, right? Like, you, you had to really appreciate basketball to appreciate him. He was one of the last guys to be on the dream team. So that felt like validation. But the Terry Porters of the world, the Kevin Duckworths of the world, the Cliff Robinsons the of the world. Oh, they were great. Rick Adelman, head coach. The, that was a great squad. Rick Adelman was the head coach of Chemeketa Community College. You've wow. never heard of it. Community <laughs> College. And Jack Ramsey lost Jack McKinney to the Lakers. And then I forgot who was there, but he needed a new assistant. And my father had to talk Jack Ramsey into Rick Adelman because how would you hire a community college coach as an assistant coach at the NBA level? And Rick Adelman became a Hall of Fame head coach, right? One of the great coaches ever. Mm -hmm. Not only in Portland, he took it to Sacramento. Yep. And, you know, with Jeff Petrie, who was my colleague uh, at the time I was with the Blazers and was the first Blazer and was the, you know, good friend to this day. And Jeff uh, and Rick went, took their act to Sacramento after Paul Allen let them uh, leave. And uh, unbelievable. They had great success there too. Um, in, in the early 2000s, um, you're a part of a, a company called G2 Strategic. Uh, and that's when you first start working with EuroLeague as a consultant, correct? Yes, it was. So I got a phone call in 2000. I had left the Blazers in 95. I started another company called Portland Family Entertainment. We bought a AAA baseball team and we bought a second division football, meaning soccer team in the United States Soccer Leagues, number two to MLS because MLS's price we thought was too high at the time, so we went the other route. And then we bought a single-A baseball team that was existing in Portland and moved it to another market to make way for the triple-A baseball team and started a company around that, and I did that uh, through the early 2000s. We renovated a, a state, an old stadium in Portland and made it really retro, hip, and really cool. Um, and then um, I get this phone call one day from a guy named Jordi Bertomeo, who was the founder and CEO of EuroLeague Basketball. And uh, I didn't know who Jordi was. And he and I didn't know, just like you asked me earlier, I didn't know what's, what you, what's EuroLeague. I don't know what you're talking about. And he got my name from David Stern. Wow. And from John Spolstra, who I used to work with and was right. my great mentor in Portland and whose son is the head coach in Miami. And... Um, he said, we're interested in having you uh, help us transform from a competition to a business. Mm. And that kind of interested me. And he said, uh, 
would you be interested in living in Barcelona for some period of time? And at the time, I was a free agent. I had a two and a half year old son. And I looked at my wife and said, do you want to live in Barcelona for a couple of years? And she said, let's go. Uh -huh. I mean, that's how it all started. And then from that, I moved back to the States. I actually lived in Boston for three years. And that's when I launched G2 Strategic because I saw that there was a opening for somebody with my background, but who had a sense of the other side of the Atlantic. And the main differentiator for me was that I could bring certain principles from the States, but I knew very well that those principles had to be very carefully modified, sometimes eliminated to address culture and norms and history and language and politics and econ economics. And that's why I think I've had a good career over here because uh, too often I've seen some very brilliant American sports marketing people come over here with, you know, cut and paste and cut and paste on work. Mm. Um, and in a somewhat interesting turn of events, uh, in 2022, last year, you replaced Jordy as uh, the CEO of the league. Uh, how True. difficult, considering your relationship with him, how difficult was the decision to be the one to replace him? Uh, he was the first phone call I made when the opportunity was uh, not not quite offered to me, but presented to me. And I said, I need to talk to Jordy first. I called him the next morning and I said, I'm not going to even consider this without your blessing. And he gave me his blessing completely. Hmm. And if I hadn't gotten his blessing, which I would have understood, I would not have pursued the opportunity. Uh, Jordy was the founder of this. Jordy made it into something amazing. Um, and like any company, you know, things, you know, sometimes just change, change happens. And I get that. I've been on his side of that too. So um, I think he felt comfortable because I knew the people here. And I knew kind of the, 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 I knew a lot of the people at the clubs as well. I've been traveling on behalf of your league for years. So I think it was, it was comfortable in that sense. Was this something that was ever on your radar? Like maybe in the back of your mind, I'd be interested in this role at some point, or were you completely kind of, wow, uh, I never really thought of that. Let me think of this. All right, fine. You know, you call Jordy, you get his blessing, you go. In other words, like, were you maybe in the back of your mind hoping for something like this to come up or were you kind of blindsided by the opportunity? No, completely blindsided. I had no idea. Okay. No idea. I mean, I think uh, the clubs, when they decided that they were going to have a transition at the leadership level, uh, thought of me because they knew me and I'd been around this. And I think they wanted somebody that would bring some new thinking um, at the same time that was comfortable with, you know, because this is Europe and, you know, you don't, if you, if you come in blind and you have no idea, it, it, the ramp up period would be really long. Mm -hmm. So I think they found in me, you know, uh, a candidate for this that kind of covered both sides of that. And what I've been trying to do since I got here is uh, to some extent change the culture uh, and advance, let's say advance the culture would be a better way of putting it. And at the same time, um, think about all the white space that's out there. I mean, I think, you know, you look at Germany, France and the UK and basketball has huge upside potential. The business intelligence that we have tells us that there's tremendous interest not only in the sport, but in this brand of the sport particularly, but we're not fulfilling that interest at this time, but we 
there's a way to get there. Uh, you know that basketball is the number one participation in sport in the UK. People don't even get that. People think, oh, basketball is not a sport. What do you mean? London's one of the most ethnically diverse markets in the world. Yeah. London, London is young and Gen Z. I mean, so now these investors come in from Miami called 777 Partners. They're well known because they own seven football clubs. They make a big investment in British basketball <laughs> at the league level, but then they buy the London Lions. And they say, well, this is going to be our showcase team. The marketing that they put behind the London Lions, just the the organic, not the not not cheesy advertising, not bad slogans, but like authentic community uh or, you know, kind of almost this organic kind of word of mouth, but doing really cool things using influencers, uh, both paid and non-paid, you know, just, you know, talking to people like you, just showing people that this is like a movement. It's almost become like a little bit of a movement. And every month that they've been in business, they play Euro Cup. Mm. Now, you can see it growing and growing and growing and I think they'll graduate to EuroLeague in the not too distant future. And we've got the same phenomena going on in Paris. There's two different groups that are pursuing teams uh, in Paris right now with us. So uh, it's really interesting. Um, and then I look at, we. I never really answered the question on the US. If we had just a very small fraction of the NBA market, and I don't mean taking it away from the NBA, sure. but additive people that really follow basketball, and we just had a small, that's like a lot. You, you know, if you watch if you watch your league basketball and you're into it, you're going to tell ten people. One hundred percent. And I, I actually, as, as an American fan, I I like the fact that you're on in the afternoon. I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because my my kids are huge soccer fans. They come home from school. It's three o'clock and there's Champions League on. And I think yeah. that's part of the appeal for young kids. They can watch it. You know, it's very hard to watch the Lakers in New York because you got to stay up till ten thirty just to see tip off. And so exactly. How big of a deal? Like I remember, I think off the top of my head, maybe three or four times the Euroleague champion has played the NBA champion in an exhibition game. I think that would be a great thing to to revive. Are there discussions about trying to mesh the two in exhibition? You know, with the with the NBA, wouldn't that be great? I would love that. We have very good relationship with the NBA. We've had sort of you know informal and more formal meetings with the NBA, including when the NBA played in Paris back in January. We had a really great meeting with uh, Deputy Commissioner Tatum and other people, and you know, certainly I have that in my mind. It's probably not today's priority, but it could be next week's priority. Mm -hmm. uh, I would love that. Um, you know, in my mind, that should be called the world championship. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't think our friends at the NBA probably <laughs> will go there, to be honest. And uh, I think they're going to insist that two out of the three referees are theirs. But uh, that's fine. You know, Concessions. Yeah, that's okay. Exactly. How how do you get the uh, the fans in Europe to recognize that you know because because the mentality is different for soccer right they know that their soccer leagues are the best and they kind of look down on mls right to them mls it, how do you get them to recognize that you know european basketball is not the mls for lack of a better analogy to their uefa if you will right that this that this is top tier stuff yeah yeah it is i i think uh I think the real basketball fans in the in the in the hardcore let's call it hardcore basketball markets, you know, Serbia certainly and Lithuania and Greece and Turkey, um, are get that 
you know, okay. we get it. But the challenge for us is that, you know, there aren't that many hardcore basketball fans in France and in Germany. And, you know, Italy is kind of somewhere in the middle. Spain, basketball is still really a big sport, but, you know, you've got two of the biggest football teams in the world here. So, you know, you're a little bit overshadowed in the media especially the traditional media, still, you know, soccer, 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 yeah. soccer, 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 basketball. I mean, which is some of that is just perception and not real because the um, the intelligence says something else. But um, it's not an easy thing to, to get across, I admit, uh, particularly now that the media is so fragmented. It's so information everywhere. Um, so I think we have to do things a little bit more um you know, you can't, you can't buy that. I don't think you could buy that. There's not some mass, you know, we're not going to do the just do it campaign. And all of a sudden, you know, one way I'm really interested, I, I would like to see a EuroLeague version of Drive to Survive because, mm. and, and there's real interest in that, by the way, we're talking to all the top producers and they're all interested because here's what struck me. I went to a players meeting in October there was one player from all 18 of our teams in our conference room. And I met uh, an American kid who, believe it or not, is from Portland, Oregon, uh, named Nigel Goss Williams, who plays from Real Madrid. And we started talking about why you're here. And basically, he was playing in, on an NBA team for two years. He was sitting. He was making really nice money. I mean, for not playing, he was making right. really nice money. He's told me he's making the same money at Real Madrid. Okay. So it's equal. Mm -hmm. um, and he said he made the, you know, he does play at Real Madrid versus not so much. So yeah. that mattered. But he said the real thing was he's got young kids and the opportunity to give them some time being in a, in a different culture. And I thought, God, the journey, I'm thinking 28% of our players are American kids. Huh. mostly African-American who come from big city America who come over here and it changes their life the way it changed my life when I came in 2002. Not, it's not financial. It's not any of that. It's just what it, it just your perspective, your worldview. And I really like that a player just said that to me and he wasn't, he, it was, it was a natural response. It wasn't a mm -hmm. scripted response. And, um, so I think about the journey that Americans take, you know, Kyle Hines, I've become really friendly with super cool guy from North Carolina, but he played in Moscow. This dude now he's in Milan now, but he played in Moscow. I mean, what's that like? And right. so that's it, those storytelling around all that. And then the other way around <clears throat> these European guys that went to the States Maybe they had a couple, you know, a cup of coffee in the NBA. Maybe they kind of struggled through three years and then they came back here and they're big stars because mm -hmm. here it's not because they're less talented. It's because the system here is a much different system. These coaches control. It's more college like here there. It's more coaches orient coach oriented, but it's kind of cool. I mean, it reminds me of Jack Ramsey in 77. The Blazers, right? They actually run plays. They actually come down and run a set play. And when it's executed perfectly, a guy gets a layup, which is the whole, that's what you're trying to do, get an easy shot. At the NBA, it seems like they're trying to get a hard shot. Yes. 
And uh, I mean, right? Yes, yes. Uh, they're taking like the lowest percentage shot uh, exactly. repeatedly, and and sometimes the quality of the athletes. You watch right guys like Curry and Damian in Portland, and it's like, whoa, it's amazing. Some of the shot making is really incredible, and that's cool. But when it when it's all the time, it gets a little redundant. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually, I actually heard a. Um, I, I was reading an interview, excuse me, with uh, Saranis Yasekevichis, who's the head coach yep. of uh, Barcelona, I believe. Right. And he was talking yep. about how he despises the NBA brand <clears throat> of basketball. Now, again, I, I don't want to crap on NBA. They, they are the best, but um, there is a great appeal, especially when you watch your broadcast, when you watch your product with the crowd, with the, the chanting, and then just the intensity and the way the game is played. It is a very appealing brand of basketball. Just a couple more questions, and then I'll let you go. And I uh, really appreciate the time. Uh, is a challenge to try to maybe, for lack of a better word, convince the younger stars. I mentioned a Doncic, a Chris Stapps recently, to, hey, you don't need to go over there so early in your career. Maybe you could stay here, or is that just, uh, you know, like a reality of I think on the world economic today? reality, if you have that level of talent, you're gone. Okay. And, and I accept that with, you know, Victor is going to be number one. Yes. Here, I forgot his name already. There's a player that plays for Tony Parker's team in Asvel. Hmm. He's uh, an Tony owner, Parker. yeah. Yeah, he's an owner, and Tony is a big deal in France, man. He is a big deal, and a wonderful, wonderful guy. I've gotten to know him. He's a really great guy. But anyway, he's got a player who's playing off the bench for Asvel, and Asvel's not our top team right now, although uh -huh. he's going to grow it, uh, who's going to be in the top five in the NBA draft next year. Mm. So you're going to get two impact players coming out of France two years in a row. You know, there's a lot of – and Tony's got an academy – in Lyon that I've toured and it's amazing. I mean, he's bringing in kids 13, 14 years old who live there, who go to school there and they're getting back because remember, you don't have college basketball. You don't have high school. They right. don't play sports in schools. They play in clubs. Right. Right. The, you know, the, the creme de la creme go to these academies. And I mean, Tony's raising the next generation of great players and somebody in that academy that's living in these dorms is going to rise above and become, you know, like that. So it's, uh, but I don't think now, but I think for some of those kids, they might come in too early. They probably go to the NBA in many cases too early. Mm -hmm. I don't blame the kid, right? There, there's, you know, the economic opportunity is pretty big. So, but it's not going to work out. The, for the vast majority of those players, the system is different for them. The way the game's played is different. It may not work out, and we'll be what we're happy to welcome them home. Um, two last things. I can't imagine what it would be like if a uh, a European was named commissioner of the NBA. Uh, what's the the reception to hmm. an American being the CEO of Euroleague? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends who you ask. Probably in the in fan world, maybe it's not so positive, you know, but uh, that's okay. Uh, you know, although, uh, you know, I think there's skepticism in that world. I think it depends what country and where people's history is from. But I will say amongst our ownership, amongst our general managers and the people I deal with on a daily basis, it's been incredibly positive and receptive. I think they're looking for me to stimulate new ideas. Sometimes they have to pull me back a little bit, remind me of certain kind of realities, and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's the tug and the pull, which is good. And then here in the office, 
um, you know, I've I've known most of the key people here for a very long time. So I think they're, you know, sometimes I'm driving them crazy because I'm pushing them to think about something or look at a problem or a differently than how they've looked at it in the past. So sometimes I have those challenges, but you know, that's, it's the same thing as if I was running an American company, right? Some people adapt more easily than others. Uh, but you know, I'm trying to move everything forward. So actually it's been pretty damn good. Okay. I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, finally, if uh, you don't mind, I, I referenced earlier your your late father, uh, the great Harry Glickman, who is a legend in uh, the world of Oregon sports. Um, failed to mention, you know, founded the Trailblazers. Uh, you know, like I said, journalist, uh, executive promoter, fighting all that stuff. Could you put his hat on for a moment and tell uh, my audience why on Friday, May nineteenth, they need to tune into ESPN Plus if they are in America and watch. The final four. Like I said, it's Olympiacos, Monaco, it's Real Madrid, Barcelona. Everyone knows what Real Madrid, Barcelona means, right? I mean, that is as storied a rivalry as it gets. Why should we watch on May 19th the final four? Because you're going to see two nail biters. You're going to see a level of passion and intensity that I hope will come through the tube uh, out and about this huge 20,000 seat arena. Uh, there's gonna you're gonna feel that energy you're gonna feel that atmosphere uh, because you're gonna see players that are gonna fight so hard for every rebound every score they'll fight 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 and uh, they'll dive for balls they'll do things that you're not used to seeing maybe so much in the states uh and then you're gonna you're gonna see it it's the the you know there's you're gonna see coaches that are let's say animated uh, to say the least, but that energy turns into positive energy. And then when you these games end, you will see joy. I mean, I know, I mean, I know when people win the Super Bowl, they're excited, but I don't the, I don't know how to put it. You feel joy, like really feel it different. There's so much pride. Um, I can't I can't describe it. So I think they should check it out because it's different. And you don't have to be a hoop junkie, you know, to get into it. Just check it out. Well, especially if you're a hoop junkie, you should check it out. But especially. I agree with you 100 percent. Uh, what a great pleasure this was. Really enjoyed the conversation, Marshall. I wish you nothing but the best um, this coming weekend and in your long tenure now as uh, CEO of your league. And uh, one day, would love to check out a game in person myself. I think that would be a great thrill. So open invitation. Always happy to welcome you. Appreciate thank it very you. much. All the best to you. Okay, thank you. All right, that was great. And I'm locked in May 19th, Final Four, May 21st. You have the finals, Olympiacos, Monaco, Real Madrid, Barcelona. One of the things that I wanted to do with this show is not just talk about the same old, same old, right? Of course, the NBA playoffs are in full swing right now, but there's no reason why on Friday afternoon you can't watch some great European basketball. And uh, I'll be doing so. And I've always kind of kept an eye, as I said at the top of the uh, conversation with Marshall, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv. I, I know of players who have played for them, Oded Katish and Omri Kaspi and uh, Doron Sheffer. I mean, I, you know, that was my European squad and uh, they've always had great success. Um, in Euroleague. They didn't make it to the Final Four this time, but uh, watching their games 
uh, is just an absolute joy. And just watching, you know, the enthusiasm and, and the passion, the fandom over there is unlike anything that we see over here, even during the playoffs, the NBA playoffs, believe it or not. So if you've never checked it out, do check it out May 19th and then the finals, May 21st. I really appreciate Marshall's time. Thank you to your league for setting this up. Appreciate them as well. And appreciate all of you for continuing to check out this program and supporting what we are doing over here. Please continue to rate, download, follow, subscribe, review, comment, all the things that you do. It does go a long way and uh, it really means a lot. All right. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the hoops. Watch your league. I'll talk to you next week.